Good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Hope Community Church. Um, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing this morning in our series called In the Shelter, uh, which is a series focused on uh, the implications of Psalm 91.1. You know Psalm 91.1, it's, it's which says that, that, that those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, the Most High God, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You see, the premise of this series is that if we are dwelling in God's shelter, if we are um, abiding, if we're living uh, in His shadow, then, then that means that we are invited to do kind of some hard, scary stuff. Things that are going to be difficult, things that are for our good, but also things that are going to draw us closer to Him. Um, the mistake would be to assume that abiding in God's shelter means that we are in God's kind of protective bubble at all times. And that's simply not true. It's interesting that the psalmist uses the word shadow to describe life with God. In this life, you will face trials. Pain will be part of your humanity. Oftentimes, that pain comes from, it comes directly from, from, from other people. Even sometimes it comes from people that you love. The hard truth is that no matter who you are, there will be times when you hurt other people, and there will be times when other people hurt you. The, the truth is that's, that's not only something to... Um, uh, accept, it's also something to expect. The hard, scary stuff then is love, acceptance, forgiveness. That's the kind of life of reconciliation that Jesus calls us into, but that's not easy. And if that's the case, to, to further kind of muddy the waters, if that's the case, then, then, then what's this all about dwelling in God's shelter? I mean, is that just words? What's the difference between dwelling in God's shelter with Him still allowing the storm to pummel us and no God at all? I mean, have you ever heard somebody say and, and, and tell you that, that, that God's answer to your prayer, that when you pray to God, God's answer is going to always be yes or better? You've heard that say, said before. Have you ever felt like, like that was kind of a, like a cop-out? I mean, what's the difference between our yes or better God and no God at all? Does it seem like the psalmist is being dangerously naive here? Doesn't he know that the world is a hard, scary place? Surely he's read the rest of the Bible, right? It gets pretty dark. See, I don't know about you, but these are the kind of questions that stress me out. I'm often uh, filled with anxiety over the thought of not being sure that, that it all makes sense. I don't have much of a scientific mind, but, but I do appreciate that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I appreciate the desire that life 
and therefore faith, hope, and love would make sense, that, that there would be some order to it. And when I can't work it out in my mind, I, I tend to get stressed out, and that stress manifests itself in some rather ugly ways. In response to T.D. To Allen's powerful teaching last week, the truth is that I, that I confess that I often use food as a mechanism for, uh, a defense mechanism for stress. When something happens that heightens my sense of anxiety, food is often the thing that I turn to in order to numb pain. And yeah, that's, that's idolatry. My mind gets that. Even my heart gets that. I want to go to God with my pain, not food or, or alcohol or, or anything else. But the truth is, it's, it's just not always that easy. If I'm honest, sometimes going to God with pain seems at best boring and at worst ineffective. I mean, we're supposed to confess our sins to one another, right? And yeah, I catch myself in that lie. And God often uses others to point me back to true north. But the struggle's real. And that's what I want us to think about today. The hard, scary truth that life is complicated. And that's exactly why I am convinced that the Jesus way of life is the only way to fly. So if you turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Philippians, it's a, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians living in the Roman province of Philippi in the, in the middle of the first century A.D., probably about 20 or 30 years after Jesus' time on earth. Um, Philippians is a love letter from Paul. Uh, I called Paul an apostle. Apostle means one who is sent out. Remember how Jesus told the disciples to go and make, um, go and make disciples of every nation, uh, no less. Uh, you know, Paul's doing just that. He was sent out to spread the good news that Jesus was, in fact, the Lord and Savior of this world. In fact, Paul was given the specific task of being sent out to Gentiles. Basically, Gentiles are everyone who is not Jewish. The problem was that when you go around telling people in the Roman Empire that Jesus is Lord, you're also kind of saying another dangerous thing, which is Caesar isn't. Since the days of Augustus, the empire has attempted to spread the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, throughout the Mediterranean and, and northwest pointed towards Europe. Uh, did you ever see the, um, the movie Gladiator? Uh, there's a scene early on where, where Caesar is speaking to one of his generals after this big victorious battle. Um, and, and, and Caesar says, you have proved your valor once again, Maximus. Let us hope for the last time. And Maximus answers, there's no one left to fight, sire. To which Caesar, old and exhausted, replies, ah, there is always someone left to fight. See, the peace of Rome was spread by the sword. And People who were seen as disloyal to Rome's definition of peace were dealt with severely. That, 
That's the stick of the empire, by the way, but there was also a carrot. You see, Rome would often populate various colonies throughout the empire with veterans from their wars. They would give land and some degree of prestige to those veterans in order to not only win their loyalty, but also spread loyalty to Caesar as the empire grew. This was clever in the days before mass media. But remember, the the farther away Caesar was from his people, there was a good news in that. It was easier um, for his people, people to them see him as more than a man. He became the man, the myth, the legend, Caesar. Caesar wanted to be known as the son of the gods, the lord and savior of his empire. Caesar worship was the fastest growing religion in the first century. So going about talking about how it was actually a a crucified revolutionary who who taught a a new kingdom from the one true God, well, that's exactly the kind of thing that would land you in prison. And you'd have to know that that if you uh, landed yourself in prison at the hands of the empire, your days were numbered. That's Paul's situation. Fear and suffering... They weren't just real possibilities, they were present realities. He's writing from some sort of prison. We're not exactly sure whether it was a a formal prison or or maybe some sort of a house arrest. What we do know is that he was dependent on the kindness of others in order to help him with life's necessities, like food. Uh, The the Philippians were doing just that. Paul was writing in, in Philippians to thank them for their their service to him, but, but he's also writing to instruct them and encourage them on how to live life in the shadow of the empire. Philippians is one of the most powerful books in the entire Bible. Personally, I think that um, other than the Sermon on the Mount, Philippians might just be my, my favorite part, if I'm allowed to say that, might just be my favorite part of the New Testament. One day, I'd, I'd love for us to, to, to work through, to preach and work through all, all, all of Philippians, verse by verse. But for now, we'll, we'll look at something that Paul says actually towards the end of the letter, uh, in chapter 4, beginning in, in verse 4. Paul says this, Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, course, the first thing you see about that passage is the word rejoice. In fact, Paul is so emphatic about rejoicing that he repeats himself. In a letter written like this, um, written by a guy in prison, no less, if, if someone repeats something, that means you know that it's important. Um, for Paul, rejoicing was by no means superficial. This wasn't Paul telling the church in Philippi to put on a happy face. For Paul, joy and celebration took discipline. Joy was a, it was a muscle 
that needed to be worked out like you work out muscles at the gym. You know that they say that the hardest thing to do in professional sports is to hit a major league fastball. Um, hitting this, I wish I had brought one. I sometimes have a ball in the pulpit, but I didn't bring one. Anyway, um, hitting this little lump of, of rubber, wool, leather coming at you at 90 plus miles an hour um, takes an outrageous amount of skill, and odds are you're going to fail. In fact, in, in the 1930 National League, did you know this? The 1930 National League was the only league to ever have a combined average of more than 300. Usually the league average is about 260 to 280. What that means? That means that the best players in the world can only do it about a quarter of the time. And that's just batting. Throwing a ball that fast and hitting your target takes outrageous skill as well. Throwing a ball um, and, and, and assuming contact is made and the ball is hit to you, now you have to figure out, if you're in the field, now you have to figure out how to A, catch it, and, and then B, do the right thing with it. Now, now I'm a fan. Um, I know the game a little bit, and I'm, I'm praying that we actually get a chance to see some live baseball this year, but, but if you ask me to actually like go onto the field and play the game, I would do a lot worse than just make a fool of myself. I wouldn't have a chance. I'd probably get hurt. Why? Well, first of all, I, I don't have the talent for it. But, but even if I did, I haven't disciplined myself to be able to play the game at that level. So Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He knows the reality of pain and suffering that exists in the world from people who deny that Caesar is Lord. He knows the, that living in the shadow of the empire is intimidating. Still, he is calling the church to be disciplined, disciplined, alert, <coughs> uh, aware of the reality of the situation. Uh, the writer Rob Bell, he puts it this way, he says, for Paul... Practicing joy and celebration is learning to discern that God is up to something, even in this. I mean, are you always going to hit the ball every time? No, I'm sorry, you're not. But rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That is language of disciplined formation. You get back up to the batter's box again and again and again, and you keep swinging. And you believe that each time you swing, even if you hit the ball, each time you swing, you are learning in humility a bit more about how to play the game. The next thing Paul says is to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The word reasonableness is also translated gentleness or forbearance or even graciousness. It's not weakness. It's often, I've often liked to think of gentleness as, as reserve strength, not, not reactive behavior, but reserve strength. As Paul uses it, the implication that, that, it is an, that, that it's an expression of kindness 
when retaliation would be expected. Uh, when someone makes that cutting comment to you um, that, that is, of course, way out of line, yet still contains the grain of truth, gentleness is having the reserved strength to say, you may be right. Jesus said, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Remember, turning the other cheek that Jesus says, that doesn't just mean that you walk away. We use that phrase a lot, well, I turned the other cheek. I, I walked away, meaning like I, I turned my cheek as I was leaving. And that, that actually isn't what Jesus was saying there. It, it, it may mean that you let them hit you again. And it certainly means not responding in kind. Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, and he really meant it. And Paul is saying in Philippians that, that Jesus meant it so much that he went to the cross in obedience to sacrificial love, in, in obedience to a gentle reaction. This is actually an, an area where, where I've experienced a little bit of victory uh, lately. Um, I've, been, I've been intentionally practicing gentleness, especially in the recent election uh, season, by choosing when to hold back a remark that would probably have left, <clears throat> led to increased hostility. And um, I've noticed the craziest thing. I've noticed that when someone crosses the line in a conversation and I don't strike back, I give them the opportunity to realize what they just said. I give them the opportunity to realize that those words had no business coming out of their mouth. And maybe they're silent. Maybe they don't realize it. Maybe they just keep plugging on. But maybe they apologize. Or at least maybe they sympathize with being on the receiving end of their words. And they say, yeah, actually, you know what? That might have been harsh. But, but here's what I mean. Whereas if I just initially kind of reactively struck back, I might have been just as guilty of, of saying something that I later regretted, and then the relationship would have been threatened. It's if Paul is saying, look guys, I know living in Philippi under the shadow of the empire, you're going to face persecution. It's going to get ugly. Living where you're living, you might need to be one guy in a crowd of a hundred that doesn't bow a knee to Caesar. And I'm here to tell you that there will be consequences for that. Paul knows better than most that there will be consequences for that. And when that happens, Paul says, everything inside of you is going to want to punch back. And I'm saying, you're called to a higher way of living. The Lord is at hand, Paul says, Anger and retaliation and coercive violence will only run, that they only run counter to the gospel that you are called to embody. On the other hand, just watch. Hold back, reserve that strength, reserve that reactive behavior, and just watch what God will do with your obedience to joy and gentleness. And then comes the crux of the passage, the one that gets quoted all the time. Do not worry about anything, but, by, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
in, in studying the word translated uh, worry or anxiety uh, there, I, I discovered that the, that the root of that word, it, it actually, it means parts. To be anxious about something is to break it down into its kind of fractured parts. To struggle with anxiety and, and its sister depression, I, I think, is to be caught in, in far too narrow a view and to be unable to see the bigger picture. I mean, I can only speak from, from my experience on this, but I know how easy it is for me to allow my point of view to be narrowed, narrowed by um, my own perception of a particular situation. And I get, I get consumed by that. I get caught up in that. And the next thing you know, the, the only thing I'm seeing, I'm, I'm, I'm viewing the entire world through just that narrow lens. For Paul, though, what Paul was saying to the Philippians is that, that they have a responsibility to train themselves not to worry. Um, but what that means, what, what that actually means in practice is that, that, that he's calling them to, to enter into a life saturated in prayer. It's interesting that Paul uses at least two different words there for the word ask, actually kind of three. First, he uses this word translated prayer, which is more formal, like the Lord's Prayer. But then he also uses this word supplication, which is far less formal. And then, then he filters them both through the lens of thanksgiving, a, a posture of gratitude. So so what's Paul saying? I mean, he's serious, but, but, but this is comforting language. This is the language of a father to a child. He's saying, be careful not to fall for the lie that, that this present trouble is all there is. There is so much more going on than, than even you realize. <laughs> There's so much more going on than even I realize, meaning Paul. Make your request be known to God. Live into a posture of prayer, formally and informally, as you continue in a life of disciplined alertness to the very presence of God. Knowing that God is really there, that, that's joy. That's, that's the kind of thing you would respond to with gentleness, not anxiety. And then lastly, Paul says that we, we should do just that, uh, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I mean, maybe think about the, uh, uh, the, 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 he uses the word guard there. I mean, think about the, 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 the church in Philippi would have known something about guards. They would have been seeing the, 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 the Romans have a very presence in their community, very, 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 uh, kind of almost militant presence in their community, right? You know, he w- they would have been able to see that. They would have had a visual idea of what it means for Rome to guard the Pax Romana, to, to, for, for Rome to guard what their definition of peace was. But, but the Hebrew term peace um, is actually, the, the, of course, the word shalom. We've talked about that before, which, which we often translate it as peace, but it, it means so much more, right? The, the better phrase might be, Harmony or concord, everything in its right place, working together, that, that's the peace of God. But, but that phrase also reminds us of, you know, that, that phrase peace of God, it also reminds us of, of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. 
that was supposed to be the salvation of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Roman history is fascinating. I think British history is fascinating. Of course, I think American history is, is more than just fascinating. I, I claim it as a part of, of my story. But, you know, libraries are filled with tales and uh, literature of the world's greatest empires. But they're all fleeting. All of them, none of them hold a candle to the peace of God. The powers of this world will come and go, but, but the kingdom of God and the movement of Christ's ecclesia will endure. I mean, Jesus himself promises us that the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul says that the, the peace of God, it, it surpasses human understanding. I mean, the, the Greco-Roman world, they, they, they knew something about human understanding. And Rome might have been trying to simplify this understanding through the connective tissue, the connective tissue of, of imperial force, but, but the, the kind of peace that Paul had in mind for the Philippians was, was the peace of God, which, which wasn't just a promised idea, it was a fundamental mode of existence to, sur, to, to surpass, Paul uses the word, it's going to surpass human understanding. To surpass in Greek means to be it means to be over something, <clears throat> to stand out, to rise above, to be superior in rank, order, and power. Paul is saying, I think you know, I know you think you know how the world works, but I'm telling you that Caesar is not the king of the universe. Caesar is not the savior of the universe. Caesar is not Lord. You do not spread power through the sword. You do it through the divine peace-embodying sacrificial love. That might not always make sense in the moment, but in the context of eternity, it's the only way to truly live. And these momentary trials, though they may be real and serious and frankly even painful, they will never be anything more than opportunities for God to grow your character. Sure, your body might be at risk from the sword of the empire. But God will protect your heart. He will protect your mind as you stay vigilant in joy and consistent in gentleness. And in closing, you know, I, I realize that these things, they, they aren't always easy to hear. Especially when you, you know, have things like year-long global pandemics and divisive elections that are in your face 24-7. But one of the things that gives me hope is that there was a reason why Paul was writing this letter in the first place, you know. Christianity is a team sport. There's no way around that. If, if you've fallen for the lie that Christianity is about you um, being saved so that you can go to heaven when you die, you've, you, you've lost the plot. Christianity is about participating in the community of God. It's about participating in the life of, a gospel, life of the gospel for a community in community. This letter from Paul, it's, it's like a coach writing to a team to stick to the fundamentals, but it's more than that. He's writing to remind them why they fell in love with the game to begin with. 
Paul is writing in simple truths, but that doesn't mean he's suggesting easy answers. Remember that as a follower of Jesus, one of your fundamental roles is, that to, is to be a disciple, a student, a learner. That requires humility. Each day we're called to get back up to that plate and take another swing, not so that one day we'll wake up and be perfect, but so that we, we will live a life aware and alert to the process that we're a part of. Not so that we'll have arrived, but so that we might be aware of the journey that we're on. The expectation is that it will take help. You are going to need help. You won't be able to do this on your own. You're going to need other people to help you when your view of the world is just too narrow. I need other people to help me when my, when my perspective is, is too narrow. When I'm, when I'm caught viewing the world just through this lens, I need a friend to come alongside me and, and gently, gently pull my hands apart and say, no, no, no. Do, do you see everything that God is doing? It, a friend who holds me accountable to my blessings. A friend who, who walks beside me. A friend who is my advocate. That's, that's the thing I, I want more than anything else for the church in 2021 is that we remind each other that the church exists in order to be an advocate for one another. I want to, that, that you might come to, to New Hope Community Church in a, in a posture of worship but, but to, that you might come here and know that, that this is a community that is for you, that is for your family, that is for your marriage, that is for your, your learning as a student um, or as a parent or as a senior citizen, regardless of what stage of life you're in, is that you would know that the church is there and that the church is on your side. Others are going to be needed to help you broaden your perspective so that you see more is going on here than you might realize. But in all of it, God will never leave you and He will never forsake you because He's along for the journey every step of the way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You for this, uh, this day uh, I thank you that um, you have called this community to be faithful to your gospel, faithful to the good news that you would have us spread throughout the world. I thank you that, that, that this is not an individualized thing, that this is a community effort, that we are New Hope Community Church. What a, what a great idea that that, that that name of our church, that title of our church, wouldn't just be our name, it would be our mission that our mission, we are in an attempt to embody the new hope that we have in you in a community that is church, that is the ecclesia, the movement, the gathering, the assembly of the gospelized people. Father, I, just, I thank you for um, calling us into the life of this community, and I just pray that you would, you would remind us to the ways that we need to broaden our perspective. That, that we need to put down our, our narrow understandings of, of individual things and, and, and help us see each other, help us with, with showing each other that um, there is a larger reason to rejoice. There is a larger reason to live into things like gentleness, 
um, and peace. And it's in the most holy name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.